Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of our podcast series, The Shades of Success, where we share with you the life stories of some of the top entrepreneurs and executives of color. Today's guest has got to be one of my favorites to date. Avita Turquoise Robinson is not only a former freelancer in the TV production industry, but is currently founder of the internationally known Nomadness Tribe, an online and in real life social community for young urban travelers and one of the most passionate, outspoken and eloquent individuals it has been my pleasure of meeting. So after a few years of freelancing in the entertainment industry, Evita realized it wasn't her purpose and set off seeing the world, creating a platform for underserved travel lovers to come together and share stories and experiences. Nomadness has grown into a community of over 13,000 with presence across the globe, a conference, a web series backed by the one and only Issa Rae, awkward black girl herself, and most importantly, a brand that has recognition, familiarity, and love. So just from listening to her speak, you can hear her passion for what she does, but make sure you listen closely as she's got some dope advice on following your dreams, no matter what obstacles may stand in your way. She is so inspirational, so I just want to jump right in and get started. Evita, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, um, my name is Evita Turquoise Robinson. I am the creator um, and CEO of Nomadness, um, which is more popularly known for the Nomadness Travel Tribe. Um, I am originally from Poughkeepsie, New York, but I've been a resident of the Bronx, New York for the last nine and a half years. Um, that's where I currently call home. And what was the other part of that question? It's <laughs> an uh, educational background. Okay, so I, yeah, growing up in Poughkeepsie, I went there literally from elementary school all the way through graduating high school, and I moved to New Rochelle, New York, uh, a suburb in Westchester, New York, just about 30 minutes outside of the city. I went to Iona College, and there I got my um, bachelor's in mass communications with a focus in television and video production, and I minored in fine art while there. And then after graduation, about six weeks after I graduated, actually, I moved to Paris, France, where this travel bug originally started, and I was shooting films with a digital certification program through the New York Film Academy. Nice. Um, nice to know you're from the Bronx, too. I'm actually from, well, you're from Poughkeepsie. You live in the Bronx, but I'm from the Bronx originally. Right. I moved to Jersey. How are you liking it? Um, I'm actually getting ready to move. Uh, I've been here for about a decade, which is a long time. Um, in between that decade, I've also lived in um, Chiang Mai, Thailand, and Niigata, Japan. So I spent, you know, a good year and a half in Asia as well, and just kind of did the sublet thing. But um, I'm definitely in a position where it's time to leave. I want my area to really be indicative of where I am in my life, the steps that I'm making, you know, the, the growth of my business, you know, all of those different things thrown into the pot. So it's important to me. I'm actually looking probably within the next two months, I'll probably be a resident of, um, of Newark, New Jersey. Um, so growing up, did you have a dream job? And if so, what was it? Um, I didn't. I, I remember actually in college, we had a class my senior year called Senior Seminar, and we had this crazy professor, Jack Breslin, who is still there. Um, you know, I remember talking to him because my dream in school was, you know, I want to be a television producer. 
And I wanted to do talent. I had I had a comfort in front of the camera that was noticeable, but I was like, you know, I want to be a producer. And I remember asking him, I'm like, you know, once you get your first job, how do you know it's time to move to the next step? And, you know, when is the time to apply for the next step? And he was like, you should never stop applying. And he's like, you have to understand getting fired in this industry is like almost a compliment, you know, like you have to keep going and the turnaround rate in television is very big, especially Mm -hmm. because you're, you're working usually based on shows. So if a show gets canceled, there's your job, you know. Um, so I, I kept that with me and, you know, have worked for a bunch of major outlets. You know, I worked at A&E for a while. I did some stuff at Turner. Um, I've done, like, the, the HBO, the BET thing, you know, even worked for Spike on a commercial for 40 Acres and a Mule. Like, did a bunch of that in my in my earlier rounds, but I can I can't say that I ever nailed my quote-unquote dream job in television um, because of two things. One, the main, actually the main reason is because once I got into, say, like an associate producer position and I started observing the producers that I was working around and becoming friends with them, I realized that I thought that was my dream job, but it wasn't because I didn't feel like I could have enough influence. And for me, it's like I've always used my voice as a tool to be able to, you know, provoke change, get people thinking. I'm very opinionated. I've been like that since I was a child. You know, never been scared to kind of stand out in the forefront and be like, look, this is what's on my mind, and it'd be interesting to have some type of dialogue about this and, you know, see where you're coming from as well. So for me, it was, it was really coming to the reality before I got into the producer position that I wanted more from my life than what I was observing from people that were in that position. You know, like it seemed like this glamorous title to me um, and, and very influential title to me on the back end. It just wasn't what I observed once I got into the industry. So that was when I started to kind of like wake up, you know, and be like, look, are you really trying to do this or what's what? And, there was one um, Friday afternoon that my boss at the time and half of the graphics department had gotten fired. And I was a freelance that he was trying to bring on permanently. And I had reservations about coming on permanently because I wanted the freedom that comes along with like, you know, making a lot of money in a really short period of time and then being able to do whatever you want after. Mm -hmm. So all of his decisions ended up being frozen So a week later, you know, I had gone from a man that was telling me that he was trying to bring me on for staff full time to a person who needed a new job the following Monday. So it was a very jarring experience. And at that time, I ended up running into a girl that had graduated college a year after me, and she had just gotten back from a year teaching in Japan. And I had not been able to shut up about my experience in Paris. At this point, it was like a couple of years had gone by. And she was like, you may want to think about doing it. You know, take a step back from what you're doing in media in New York and, you know, go abroad again, teach, do something that's completely different and kind of, you know, find, find your path while you're out there. So I ended up doing that. And that's what brought me to um, Migasa Japan for a year. I was out there teaching English and bartending. Um, but, yeah, so I can't say that I've ever, you know, I think now being a CEO – you know, those are things that all kind of fall within that realm. Um, and, and the influence that I have with No Madness, I think 
when I didn't get hired for my quote unquote dream job or when that dream, the, you know, the wool was pulled from over my eyes and I saw it. So what it really was for me, I ended up taking a path of more so creating what my dream job would look like. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really been the underbelly of what's pushed me through um, creating your madness. Okay. And to take a step back, you said you did a lot of freelancing with a lot of big networks. So how were you able to begin freelancing? How did you get into that to, to begin with? Um, freelancing really was just, I mean, when you go to school in a place that's right outside New York City, mm-hmm. you know, and you start to make those types of connections and networking in the industry, the industry is it's big, but it's kind of small once you get into the actual city. You know, like I'm sure there's people in L.A. that run into a lot of the same people working on projects. Same thing in New York. Like I would start running into the same people, and then they will start to refer you if you're like a cool person to work with because when you're doing production, you're rocking out. You know, sometimes you're working like 15-hour days, and if you're an asshole, nobody's going to want to be around you, you know, mm-hmm. and they're not going to suggest you and refer you for other jobs. So I think really having just like a cool, amicable demeanor, um, you know, it is a creative space. You can do what you need to do. You know, you can be yourself. Nobody's trying to stifle that. And and a lot of times it's a really, really fun environment and a free environment. So for me, it was just getting the applicant, the application process done early. You know, I even ran into some issues with my school because I had a professor that really believed in me, but the policy that they had for internships in college was just completely out of whack. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up on my own getting an internship with Sony Music. And um, and I did that before I graduated. You know, I was like, I'm padding this e- this this resume before I even leave these doors and walk across the stage because mm-hmm. I have enough foresight to know that I'm I'm going into the belly of the beast as far as media in a city like New York. So that was one of the biggest things, and that helped really between padding my resume early while I was in school as well as, you know, the networking that I was able to do at a young age that all aided into it. And then the rest of it was honestly, it was just applying, you know, applying and going through the same channels as everyone else, but being very diligent about, you know, making sure that I was putting myself out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And after you went through freelancing for a few years and realized that that wasn't going to be your calling, you started your travel vlog, Nomadness TV. So where did you come up with the idea for this, and how did you get it started? I was a three-time expat, so I really started Nomadness while I was living out in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just you know, saw myself as like a 20-something-year-old black girl and backpacking around the world kind of like by myself but I figured that there had to be other people that were out there doing this too and it became an effort for me to really want to bring create a home for these people and and I couldn't find a space that I felt I could identify with you know whether it was diversity, the types of conversations. I wanted something that was more interpersonal. I wanted something that was more familial. And everything else was very, you know, surface, very top 10 tips, you know-ish. And I was just like, you know, I can kind of figure this stuff out on my own. I want to talk to real people about what it's like having travel as a part of your lifestyle, not just vacationing. Mm -hmm. And so that was really what inspired me to start Nomadness TV. And, um, yeah, and it's kind of like, grown from there you know and it started with a blog I mean now anybody can start a blog I feel like everybody should have a blog especially a lot of kids coming out of college now like whatever it is that you're trying to shape your career around 
I mean, you, there's so many just free tools, even more so now than when I was in school. Um, there's so many free tools that help you navigate that entire space now. There's kind of no reason why you don't have some type of cyber imprint before you graduate from college. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so was it you going to these cities, kind of taping yourself, telling your story, how it started? Yeah, I mean, it started off as a blog, really, of just me being like a travel photographer and me writing about where I was. Writing is still the gift that I feel like I was born with, naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, So it started with the writing, and then after that, it kind of grew into me creating a video series while I was in Japan because I just felt like I needed needed stronger visuals and a more, you know, in-depth conversation to be had with all the things that I was experiencing in Japan. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then so from No Madness TV, it turned into a whole platform for others in the community to join. So how did you get that started and grow it into what it is today? Um, I started on Facebook. You know, I one of the quotes that I swear by that I've heard before was like, if the Internet was a geographic location, Facebook would be the capital. <laughs> it's where everybody is, you know, and everybody still was before, you know, when I started this in 2011. So it, it's definitely about using the platforms that are already out there to your advantage, kind of finding one that you feel really represents your lifestyle um, and is the best communicative tool to get to the people that you're trying to get to. Um, So starting the tribe, I mean, I put the first 100 people in, and now five years in, we're, you know, tapping on 13,000 worldwide. There's no country that I can travel to right now and not know somebody who's there. And and that's an amazing feeling to be able to have been kind of like the, the brainchild and the catalyst behind literally a movement. I think people use the word movement way too loosely. And I really do genuinely feel like no madness is a movement. And, and I appreciate it as such. Um, but I started, yeah, I started with 100 people. The one prerequisite, which still stands today, is you have to have at least one passport stamp. And, you know, that wasn't an elitist move, which we've been dubbed, like, so off course for. I don't know where the hell that came from. (laughs) It was more so a tool for me to understand that, like, we were breeding – it was a breeding place for the integrity of, like, real travelers. Because the thing is, like, I don't want to have to coerce you into travel. And the truth is, once you take that jump once, you understand why it's so important. That's why the prerequisite was just one passport stamp and not five, you know? And so that was something that was really, really important to me. I wanted to build a group of people who have done this before, who get why it's important, understand that it's life-changing, and have actually made the move and done it. And so for me, that's that's where the one prerequisite came from, and it really just started. Like, I've never paid for PR for Nomadness. Everything that we've gotten has been – you know, people that were really interested in our story and mm-hmm. interested in our progression. You know, a lot of them were from people that are members. So, you know, it kind of goes across the board. Yeah, and that goes to show you that it's a shared passion, that they're willing to promote it just as much. Right. And so you are now collaborating with Issa Rae and forming the No Madness Project. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how your vision of this first started? Yeah, so Issa and I were on a panel together at, I believe it was Temple University a couple years back. And ironically, I had just gotten back from our India trip. 
And so I had all these amazing photos from, like, the Taj Mahal and Holy Festival of Colors on my phone. And obviously, you know, it's Issa. We geeked out, and the panel had to do with crowdfunding. So after the panel was done, we all went out to go eat, and I was able to really have some, like, one-on-one conversations with her. And it was so dope because she just, like, looked at the pictures and was enamored. She's like, I love this. I love it. I love it. I love it. And it was maybe four months after that, I was at an airport on the way to Samoa for our off-the-beaten-path trip, and it just clicked to me. I hadn't touched the web series in a long time. I had been brainstorming the idea of turning the web series from, like, something that was just very me vlogger-oriented to something that really showcased what we were doing on trips and about the tribe. And that was the first trip in years where I had, like, diligently and consciously bought my DSLR with me because I knew I was going to shoot. I didn't know what I was going to shoot, but I knew I was going to shoot something. And while I was out there, the story really just started to unravel itself, you know, and as I'm shooting these things and hearing about the stories, because where we stayed in Samoa was where the 2000 and I believe nine tsunami hit mm-hmm. and hearing the stories of like people losing their children and just like seeing the resilience of the Samoan community, it was so powerful. And the next thing I knew, I thought I was just going to be shooting like a promo for our trips and I'm shooting a web series episode. Mm-hmm. And so I kept going with that. And on, at the airport on the way back, I hit Issa up. And I was just like, listen, I don't know if you have anything, one, reality-based on your channel, and two, travel-based, and our demos completely overlap. Would you be interested in us doing, like, a nomadness web series of content? And she said yes. And it wasn't – it was a very easy buy-in, you know what I'm saying, because it just it made all the sense in the world, and I just didn't understand why I didn't see that a bit earlier than I did. But everything in its due time, so – we're actually in the middle of season two um, already that's been streaming. It comes out every other Friday on her YouTube channel. And, um, yeah, we did season one last year. It premiered May 22nd, 2015, and now we're literally in the throes of season two. Nice. And you mentioned that you were on the way to your Samoa trip and you had done an India trip. So do you plan trips for the community and then people who'd like to come come with you? Yeah, we have, um, we're approaching our 30th trip in five years, mm-hmm. so um, I'm on the road a lot. Either mm-hmm. myself or my trip advisor, we would facilitate the trips. Um, I have another girl on my high council team, Brittany, she's actually facilitating our cruise trip right now. Um, and so that's something we've done, but I made the announcement in January of this year that after 2016, we're actually no longer doing international trips. And we're pivoting to large-scale international events, pop-up events around the world. So that's going to be a big change we have going into next year. And you mean more so like conferences or like multi-day just kind of come together events? Um, The funny thing is I announce our stuff to the group by surprise, so I can't get into the details with you. But, um, you know, one of the examples that I've given is like we have – a very famous tribe weekend, which is always the last full weekend in September. Every year, hundreds of my members fly into New York from all around the world. We have a huge party that night. We have an award ceremony that night. And as of last year, we did our first NMDN alternative travel conference, which sold out. So really, it's the first conference in the United States that specifically targeted like urban travelers, millennial, it was made up of primarily like 95% of like young urban millennials, particularly travelers of color. 
And so we're doing that again this year, and it was the same day as the party. The conference was during the day. The party was at night, and we're bringing that again this year as well. So I tell people kind of like an example of like, you know, like our anniversary party, but mm-hmm. in like Tokyo or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's more to them, but if I had to give kind of like a blanket example, that would be it. Okay, cool. And you just mentioned your conference as well. So when did you find the time to launch a full conference, and how are you able to go about doing so? Um, you make time for what you need to get done. I think that's really <laughs> – we all have the same 24-hour day. It's just depending on what you do with it. So I think in that way, it's just, you know, this was one of the bigger goals that I had had on my agenda for a while, something that I really felt was needed. You know, myself and the team got together, and we started to really fine-tune what it was going to look like. And, you know, we built the aesthetic from scratch. It wasn't in a – I was like, I do not want something that is in somebody's hotel conference room. I hate that <laughs> shit. Like, everything that I hated about conferences that I had gone to, I made sure that we did the opposite for ours. Mm-hmm. And it ended up just being an awesome experience for everybody that attended it. So I'm really excited about what we're bringing to the forefront for 2016. Okay. And then, so your members that join up and join the Nomadness Tribe, what can they expect to get from becoming a member of the community? They can expect to automatically be injected into a network of 13,000 people that live and have lived all around the world. Um, If they want to go to Italy tomorrow, not only do we have people that live there that would probably be willing to meet up with you, but we have tons of people and tons of archives of one-to-one information from people that look like you and come from the same background as you, therefore probably have the same interests as you. Um, You are thrown into a network where if anything happens, you know, there's people that you can reach out to where in a lot of cases people can't even say that about their own family. Mm -hmm. Um, You are thrown into a network in which you're able to travel with these people and they're not like your everyday friends who will say that they want to go somewhere and then Mm -hmm. fall out at last minute. Mm-hmm. You are brought into a literally a worldwide movement and a worldwide community that has an, an insurmountable knowledge base when it comes to just all of the intricacies of travel, um, both domestic and international, but primarily international, as well as tangible people, not just followers, um, that you would be able to link up with and create relationships with around the world. Okay, that sounds like a good buy-in. Um, so some entrepreneurs believe that following their passion is the best way to go about it, while others believe they should just pursue what they're good at. And you seem to have figured out a way to do both. How are you able to do so? Um, I don't know if no madness – again, I want it to be in television. So mm-hmm. being in television and creating no madness are vastly different. Mm-hmm. So I can't say that – I consciously knew that, that that's what I was doing. I am definitely somebody that veers more along the lines of passion. Mm -hmm. I think what I have a knack for is authenticity as to who I am and what I represent, and then that bleeds into my group, as well as I'm an international connector. I've always had a knack for bringing unrelated groups of people together, even as a child. I used to do this with, like, house parties. And and that's something that I've just seen grow naturally as, um, you know, on an international scale with, you know, adults all over the world through no madness. So I think if anything, it was definitely a call for, like, the passion was the first, that was the first and the most prominent. I think what naturally ended up happening were the skill sets that I just have innately as a person 
only added to what I was, what I was, and have been able to build with No Madness. Okay, got it. Okay, and so you have a beautiful concept, and you've grown it into an amazing organization. How are you able to monetize it to keep it going? Um, we've monetized through events. We've monetized through the trips. We've come up with really cool concepts for projects, and then we've done three overly successful crowdfunding campaigns for them. Mm-hmm. Um, we are able to monetize through sponsorship, through advertising, through things like the anniversary party and the conference. We also have a really cool and kind of like in-your-face merchandise line at nomadnessmerch.com. So there's, you know, outside of also my speaking engagements and things like that, because my brand is also growing in tandem with the Nomadness brand at this point. Mm-hmm. So I've always had multiple streams of income. There's no one answer to that question. Okay. And so I know you help facilitate the conversation about traveling, but how much traveling do you get to do yourself? And do you have any favorite places? I'm literally on almost all the Nomadness trips. I facilitate oh. almost all of them. Literally April was the first month since October that I hadn't been in an international country I've been in an international country once a month since October. Oh, wow. So it's like I'm always on the go. Um, And the majority of it is for nomadness-oriented stuff. As far as favorite places, anytime I get this question, it's just really hard because I can't say that I have a favorite place, and the world is so different. Like, what I like about one place may be something completely different in another place. You know, I say if I had to pick – a few trips out of the hat, you know, I'd kind of take India out, I'd take South Africa out, I'd take Samoa out. Those are just some places that have kind of left an imprint, but that's a very, it's a hard question. I've never been able to just answer that directly. Okay. And then in today's day and age, a lot of millennials are kind of working a lot of hours for low pay. Do you have any advice um, for someone who's been hit by the travel bug but might be having a hard time finding a way to see the world? Um, I would say to prioritize what you have and find a way to get paid for traveling. Mm -hmm. Even if it's something where you get a comp trip, like a press trip or something, um, I would also tap into your school. You know, you don't know if there's anything that they have for current students or alumni, something that could potentially get, you know, sponsored. I would really tap into that. And I think one of the biggest assets that is out in the universe right now that not only college students but also college staff are completely unaware of and completely missing the ball on is crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. When we did our, our V tour um, in 2013 and I spoke at a bunch of HBCUs, I was, it was baffling to me how nobody knew about crowdfunding. I was like, if crowdfunding was around when I was in college, every crazy ass idea that I had would have <laughs> been paid for, would have been paid for. I would have hustled and fundraised my ass off and everything would have been paid for. So I feel like crowdfunding is a huge tool and asset that is not being taken advantage of by a younger generation that really is shaping it and has the ability to shape it in the years to come. Okay. And then with the thousands of crowdsourcing or crowdfunding um, campaigns going on right now, do you have any advice on how someone can make theirs stick out from the rest? Yeah. Have it be something that's very special to a specific niche of people. It's not about trying to attract everyone. It's about hitting the emotional core of a select few of people that understand you, they trust you, they trust your message. 
I would have an innovative project that it was wrapped around. Don't just set up a GoFundMe and be like, yeah, I want to go to Paris this summer. Give me $5,000. Literally create something that is innovative and, and even something that gives back and has an element potentially of, like, social change. And then I would push that heavily on my school, you know, and, and be something that, you know, other people can benefit, not just me. But I would definitely wrap it up around a project that can be focused around a specific niche of people. Um, because the key to crowdfunding successfully, it's not a couple people that donate a lot of money. It's a lot of people that donate a little bit of money. And when you think about it in that realm, you need something that really resonates with people. But I would have a built-in community that you know you can target already. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good advice. And uh, currently, what is your main role and the task associated with it for No Madness? Do you kind of wear the hat, any hats, and do almost everything, or do you have a strong team behind you now? Um, I, it's both. Um, my team, we affectionately call ourselves High Council. It's just something kitschy <laughs> given the whole tribe thing. Um, and everybody has their specific role, you know, from trip coordinator to social media directors and, you know, all of that stuff. So I definitely have a loyal and amazing team behind me, but I am still the only person that does No Madness full-time. So I am, you know, and it's my baby. So I am the one that definitely puts in the most time, effort, sweat, equity, you know, all of that into No Madness. I have my hands into everything. Um, you know, they have their own, you know, their, their strengths tend to be my weaknesses, but at the same point in time, I always make sure that I ensure that I know a little bit about everything that's going on. That way, if for some reason something changes, we're not completely falling off the wagon because somebody isn't there. So I definitely have my hand still in, um, in everything, but I also do couple that with a team. Okay. And what would you say is the biggest obstacle you've ever felt on your journey so far, and how were you able to overcome it? Um, I'm an empath, therefore I get very emotionally involved with people and being able to balance that and remember that this is equal parts community and business is something that I have to navigate all the time. Um, and sometimes I have to do it in a way that isn't, in, isn't really with my natural discourse. Um, and really the way that I get about it is understanding that my community is just that. It's both community and business, but at the end of the day, I still also want, I want both aspects of it to be successful. You know, so if I have to kick somebody out because they're acting up in the community, that has to happen. If I have to make a business decision that community may be pissed off with, that also has to happen. And just understanding that that is my role and being able to balance between the two. Okay. And what would you say has brought you the most joy from No Madness so far? The connection with the people. I've made memories and connections with people that I would not have otherwise known, and I've been able to do that all around the world. And that's powerful. And what do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started out growing your company? Um, that... Uh, my worst and, and no madness is worst. I think that, you know, I'm in a space now where I'm extremely confident with what I bring to the table. Therefore I assert myself as such. And I wasn't always like that in the beginning because I didn't know what this was. Like I started no madness thinking it was going to be like a group and a blog. I didn't know that it was going to turn into a business. That wasn't my initial intention. Okay. And my final question to you is what do you anticipate happening for no madness and for yourself? Um, best-selling books, 
um, an amazing television series, whether on television or a digital television series. Um, I picture us growing with integrity, not just about us, you know, padding numbers in, but getting people in different regions around the world that really get us and get the mission. Um, I envision us being a well-respected and top tech company um, in in the world, you know, let alone the United States, and really to continue the mission of influencing this generation and the next generation of urban travelers. Thanks again to Evita for her time today. Have a follow-up question? Leave a comment below, and we will be sure to ask her and get you an answer. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next week.